Welcome again to St. John, and uh, I'm Stephen Howard. I'm one of the teaching pastors. It's my privilege to um, wrap this series up as we're talking about things that are out of context, things that uh, are often quoted in the Bible, but can often also be misunderstood. We're going to be taking a look at John chapter 17. We welcome also those who are watching online. If you have a smart device, you can open it up to the Bible app. And you can choose live event and it'll pop that scripture right open for you. You can also communicate back to us if you'd like. You know, or you can just go old school on me and pull that Bible out of the pew. Uh, John is more towards the back of the Bible than it is the front. And we're going to be looking at chapter 17. Jesus praying for his disciples the very night that he would be arrested, the next day crucified. Jesus' last prayer for his disciples in just a moment. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth In the thoughts of all the assembled hearts, Lord, may they be open. My my mouth be open to your instruction. I don't want to say anything that's not true, anything that's of my own opinion, but rather speak your word into the lives of these, your people, into my life. And and may also the thoughts of those gathered, you know, that, that they would lay down their preconditions, their presuppositions about what is true and and be open to your instruction, open to your guidance and to your word so that my words and their thoughts would be in align with your will to the benefit of our lives and to the benefit of the society in which we live, our family, our friends, and to the benefit of our witness. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm not the only pastor, but uh, in order to be a pastor, you have to attend seminary and you have to take classes. And uh, some of the classes teach you how to preach. In fact, you have to take a number of those classes, and, and I violate most of the rules. But uh, it's called homiletics, and uh, the art of homiletics is very simple. You take a complex spiritual truth, and you render it easy to understand. We do a great job of that here, don't we? Oh, patronize me. Go ahead. Yeah. You know, to make it simple to understand. But I'm going to do just the opposite of that today. Uh, I'm going to take a commonly understood spiritual truth we think that we know and show that it's more complex than you might realize. You know, it's kind of twisting things on their head because I do think this subject, to be in the world and not of the world, may be misunderstood. And for good reason, you know. I have to struggle to keep it straight in my own life. What did Jesus mean by that, that we're in the world but we're not of the world? You know, what does God have to say about that, not what does everybody else have to say about that? And we're going to do it on the basis of John 17. This is the uh, Lord's Prayer, not the one that you know as the Lord's Prayer, but it is the Lord's Prayer. In fact, the entire chapter is a long prayer that Jesus prayed in, in the upper room with his disciples before he was arrested. The whole chapter is a prayer, and he's praying to his Father on behalf of his disciples, but not just on behalf of his disciples. He's praying also on your behalf, because later in a section I'm not going to quote, he says, I pray not only for these, but also for all those who will come to believe in me through these, my disciples' words. So he's actually looking through the centuries and praying for us. We'll begin at verse 13, go through verse 17. Let's read it together. You follow along quietly. I'm coming to you now. I'm coming to you, Father, now. But I say these things while I am still in the world. I'm still present here. I haven't died yet. I haven't come to heaven. So that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word. Both he lived it out in front of them and he also taught them. 
And the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. You know, they crucified Jesus because of the truth. My prayer, however, is not that you take them out and somehow shield them, protect them, uh, take them out of the world, but that you protect them while they're in the world from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. Some of my uh, teachers in the audience said, explain sanctify. It just means to make holy. You make them holy in your word. Or, and and I, we think of holy as H-O-L-Y, but I think holy with a W. Make them whole you know, through your word. Make them healthy. Make them capable in this difficult world uh, to be yours uh, by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, that's a simple message. Christians, you are to be in the world, but not of the world. That's the Bible truth. Uh, simply stated, mostly it gets translated uh, in this fashion. I may have to live in this world, but I won't conform. In fact, I'm an enemy of this world, and, and it's my job as a Christian in this world to condemn what the world believes to be true, because we know that what the world believes is not true. I will have nothing to do with this world. I will go to war with this world. I don't have to like living in this world because I am of a different ilk. In fact, if you listen to Christian radio, TV preachers, radio preachers, even if you listen to conservative news programming, and, and I do, and there's a lot of good to be found there, they will say that the moral failure of our country is largely the blame of Christian pulpits because they are not up there denouncing the immorality of our nation like they should be doing. They are silent on the most crucial issues and therefore our world is in the shape and America is in the shape that it is. You know, they should be in the world decrying the world for its misunderstanding. Is that true? Are we to be the moral watchdogs? Is that what a Christian church is to be? A moral watchdog for the nation and for our people? If you listen to some of them, it's almost like uh, uh, they are leading a pep rally. They don't often talk about the issues that the people sitting in front of them are talking about. They rally their spirit to talk about the president, to talk about Congress, to talk about evils, the social evils in our world. You know, as though that's courageous, you know, to speak to the choir, to speak to people who believe that about those who are wrong when we are so right. Is that what it means to be in the world and yet not of the world, to be condemning that which is wrong in the world? The world has its own view of Christians in the marketplace, you know, uh, our role and, and, and how we are defined by them. I did a little research and I, I googled what Christian stereotypes were, and there are basically about five of them, or probably more, but there are versions of these five, and, and you will see them in film. You will see them in uh, both the large screen and the small screen. I don't know if you've seen this film yet, uh, The Fault in Our Stars. Got to go see it, Ser sincerely. It's one of the most powerful love stories uh, of this year. Uh, bring lots of Kleenex. It's a powerful story. And, and what I love about it is the characters are so real. They're not just glamorous people. You know, the two people who fall in love are very common-looking people and, and uh, well-written scripts for them. And uh, in, in fact, I, I'm a person who loves words, loves phraseology, obviously what I do for a living. 
And, and w- she describes how she fell in love with this person. They're both fighting cancer. This is a cancer support group they're attending. That's where they meet. And she says, falling in love with him was like falling asleep. Slowly at first, then all of a sudden. Just say, aw. You know, it's, it's pretty powerful. You want to remember that, you know. Uh, but what, the reason I circled this guy is Patrick is the leader of the support group. Now, this is a Christian support group, and Patrick's the Christian leader. Now, Patrick is actually uh, uh, Mike uh, Berbiglia, and Mike Berbiglia won the Comedian of the Year Award by the American Comedic uh, Association last year. So where did they go looking for the Christian guy? You know, that's who they went to look for. In fact, this rug that they gather on is one that he uh, hooked for himself. And he has them all nail in the very heart of Jesus. And he's the comic relief for the whole movie. The movie is well worth seeing, don't get me wrong. But it's curious to me, you know, how they depicted the Christian person who is helping others through the world. And he is kind of more or less mocked by them. You know, he would be the exhibit A, the dork, who is also a Christian. Exhibit two would be Marianne in Easy A. Easy A is a teenage, uh, you know, movie that has uh, had a lot of power uh, among teenagers. It's, it's the teen version of The Scarlet Letter. You know what The Scarlet Letter is about, you know, uh, loose moral issues. And, and this Christian uh, girl is concerned about the moral decay of her high school. And so she's depicted as the Christian in the film against what is moral decay in her high school. You have to only read the description of the characters uh, that are posted on the web to understand, you know, how they have portrayed her. She's a Jesus-loving, closeted lesbian who will stop at nothing to rid North Aja High School of anyone whom she doesn't deem to be perfect in God's eyes. She's bipolar. She's dating a 22-year-old named Micah who is sleeping with a guidance counselor behind her back. You know, so she's the hypocrite who is portrayed as Christians. This is how the world sees us, as hypocrites, as dorks. Or exhibit three, maybe you didn't know those people, but you got to know this guy, Ned Flanders. Ned Flanders, of course, is the annoying neighbor of Homer uh, in The Simpsons. And uh, uh, he is all of that. He is the killjoy. You know, he is not winsome as a neighbor. He, he makes Homer feel badly. In fact, he makes other Christians feel badly. In fact, his own pastor is called Reverend Killjoy, not Killjoy, Lovejoy, <laughs> but uh, Lovejoy. And, and his own pastor suggests that he join a different church or even another faith because he's tired of having him call him to know how he should act in every situation. And, and, and if you don't know Ned Flanders, you've got to know this person, Edith Bunker. And who's her husband? Archie, Archie. You know, uh, uh, the Bunker's all in the family. It's a decade ago, a generation ago. But she's still well known for playing the role of the dingbat. She's well-intentioned, but she's a bit naive. People think that of Christians. You know, you're well-intentioned, but you're a bit naive. Uh, The scriptwriters one time had her say in, in the program that she favored capital punishment as long as it wasn't too severe. You know, it's a bit naive, a bit naive. And, and uh, I'm a History Channel buff, and, and so I have DVR'd uh, the Viking series. You know, I don't pretend that most of you even know the Viking series, but uh, I'm curious about that culture. And, and uh, this is the Christian in that series, uh, Athistan. It's interesting. It's a combination of atheist and Christian, and uh, that's his name, Athistan. He is actually a monk uh, who, during a raid of uh, the Nordsmen uh, in England, was taken captive. And he comes to embrace, uh, actually, the uh, pagan religion of the Norsemen and their sexuality as well. 
uh, but he longs for the education of the Catholic Church. And when they raid once again, he defects and goes back to the Catholic Church, uh, back to the uh, church, and they immediately crucify him as being one who uh, left the faith, yeah, literally crucified him, which says a whole lot about Christians, both him and his expediency, and also the Catholic Church who was unforgiving of him. So the question remains, how are we to be in the world and not of the world? You know, do we let society define that for us? Do we let Christian radio define that for us? Do we let the news media define that for us? I prefer in this place that we would let Jesus define that for us. And he does in this prayer when he prays for his disciples that they would be in the world and not of the world. And so we're going to take a look at his motive you know, for uh, urging us to be in the world and not of the world, beginning at verse 13. He says, Father, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world. These are not things that he wants for you someday when you get to heaven. These are for now, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them now. The Lord is concerned about the present. The Christian faith is not just for the day that you die and go to heaven. And so you, you dabble in the faith and, and, and you touch all the bases so that ultimately when you die, you can have the rich rewards that God intends for the faithful. He has rich rewards intended for you now. I wish more Christians understood that. I, I think our churches would be full. Because people would realize, I want to have the riches of the Lord in my life now, not just when I die. Most people believe, I think even Christians believe, that uh, the Christian faith imposes on my freedom. That it keeps me from experiencing all that I could experience if I didn't have these nagging Christian values bugging me all the time. When in fact, Jesus said to his followers, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. He doesn't want to take from you joy. He wants to multiply your joy. He said, in fact, if you abide in my teaching, then you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. It won't enslave you. The Christian principles and the Christian values don't restrict your life. They free your life. And, and, and it's funny how we get this turned around because we think that the world has freedom. You know, freedom to live and do whatever they want. I thought Pastor Garrett did a great job of that last week when he, when he talked about how what the world engages is is often so attractive to us, but yet it's those things that enslave us, not the truth of God's word. Gossip, argumentative attitudes, sexual perversions, greed, jealousy, drunkenness, power trips, materialism. These are the things that the world seeks after, and often Christians are envious of the world because they can do those without restraint. When in fact, those are not the solution to the life that God wants even for them to have, the fullness of life. A few Sundays ago, we talked about that as we looked at Paul's advice to Timothy, kind of his last will and testament, you know, as he was preparing to die. He said, Timothy, instruct those who are rich in this world to follow the principles that lead to life that is truly life. Trust God, be rich in good deeds, and be generous. Trust God be rich in good deeds, and be generous. That's the key to a full life. It's not a restrictive understanding of life. That is truly life. Jesus wanted us to have that to the full. We are not spared the reality of life. 
You know, Christians deal with difficulty. We just sang about, uh, you know, when the waters around me rise, when the mountain stands in the path that I walk, you know, then I fall upon the grace of God. Christians have recourse. We are, we are not spared the difficulties of life. But we know through the difficulties of life, God will strengthen us and he will even bless us. In fact, if we look back on our lives, those of us who have lived a while know that some of the difficulties that we had were essential to the growth that we enjoyed and to the blessings that came through those hard times. You know, the difficulties are often the means by which God blesses us and the, reason, and the means by which he brings favor into our world. So he wants his joy to be made full in our life now. But he does have concern for us because we're living in a world that won't accept necessarily the things that we believe and the values that we hold. His reasons for concern? Because I have given them your word. You know, they do march to the beat of a different drum. And the world will hate them because they are not of the world even more than I am of the world. Notice he says the world will hate them. He does not say... You should hate the world. The world is not your enemy. There is an enemy, but the world is not it. In fact, the Bible teaches just the opposite. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world that the world might be saved through him. Verse 17 goes on to say, God did not not send his son into the world to judge the world. It's not our mission. Despite what the radio preacher, despite what you know, conservative news may tell you, it's not our job to judge the world. We are not to be the, the moral bully pulpit, the, the moral watchdog for the world. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Our job as a Christian is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the love of God for all people, uh, lost people, saved people. Everyone needs him. And apart from him, your life will be lacking. There's power in just knowing that. Jesus did not say you should hate the world. Even from the cross, he prayed compassion for his enemies. Father, forgive them because they're acting in ignorance. If you were to be in the world, can you do that? Can you, can you pray for those who are bringing difficulty into your life because they aren't Christian? Can you say, Father, forgive them because they're acting in ignorance? Here's how Paul described living in the world and not being of the world. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win all the more. You know, I'm a slave to this world in which I live. You know, I'm not superior to it. I am sent to serve it. What a different mindset, different attitude. He says, as to the Jews, I will become like a Jew. To those who are under the law, although I know I'm not under the law, I will act as though I'm under the law that I might save those who are under the law. I know that I'm freed by Jesus Christ. I know his forgiveness overwhelms all of my sin. You know, that was talked about by Pastor Garrett last week. You know, we stand in his grace. Yes, we still sin. We are sinner and saint at the same time. A difficult concept. And yet that's true about us. You know, I am saved by grace. Even though I know 
that I am not under obedience in the way that a Jewish person is under obedience in order that my life might be pleasing enough to God sometime to pass his judgment. Hopefully I've done more good than bad in life and, and, and God will go easy on me when I face him after my death. Kind of a, a Jewish work righteous understanding of how one pleases God. I know that Jesus through uh, the cross and the empty tomb has granted me complete forgiveness and complete acceptance. So Paul says, I'm not under those laws. And yet I will act as though I'm under those laws in order that I might save those who live under the law. And to the Gentiles, people who have no knowledge of the Old Testament, I will act as though I have no knowledge of the Old Testament, even though I have great knowledge of God's expectation. Why? In order that I might save those who think that the law does not apply to them. And yet I know the law applies to me. You know, as Pastor Garrett again last week said, you know, it's not that we don't care about moral expectations. It's not that we won't talk about what is morally right and wrong here. We will. Because there is consequence for sin. It's not that sin doesn't matter. I'm forgiven. But sin still bears consequence. It always brings hardship into my life. It brings hardship into my family's life. You know that. And it brings hardship into other relationships, into the workplace, into society. And it also damages your witness as a Christian before the world, your purpose in life. So I'm not saying sin doesn't matter. But I won't be worried about my sin. To the weak I will become like the weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its teaching. Jesus did not say that we should hate the world, but he said we should manage our expectations. We should know that the world will not accept what we believe to be true. I think it helps us if we understand that the world is normal and we are peculiar. Uh, the Bible even says you are a peculiar people. You do march by the beat of a different drum. You know, what you believe is unreasonable to others. And yet it is what you believe. And by living that life and by having that conviction in the world, you will make a difference in the world in which you live. So uh, the Lord says, I want you to be in the world. And now he says, I, this is the strategy that I have for you. He says in verse 15, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. I don't want you to join a monastery, a convent. I don't want you to separate yourself from the world. But do protect them from the evil one, because there is an evil in the world. He said, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. God wants us to stay in it, to win it. He truly does. You know, in the 1960s, America uh, fought a, a battle for uh, race rights. And, and, and in that battle, there was a phrase that uh, separate but equal is not equal. You know, by segregation, uh, there is inequity and there is abuse. And yet so often in the Christian church, we practice segregation. You know, uh, we pull ourselves out of the world. We have our own social deals. You know, we have our uh, own means of, uh, of providing help. We don't necessarily mix with the world. Uh, in, in tragic circumstance. You know, we do our Christian expression of this and our Christian expression of that. And, and as a congregation, I know it's been somewhat confusing to say that we want to be a community-minded church. We don't want to recreate what the world is already doing. We want to invigorate. We want to investigate. We want to infiltrate what the world is doing. We want to bring the witness of God into the world, not apart from the world, not being separate from the world and all these things. 
but allowing our witness to be shoulder to shoulder and side by side with other people who are also engaged in some of the difficulties of our world. And in this way, show and live our faith. In our congregation, we use a, a four numerical code kind of definition of what the Christian faith is. We call it 1, 1, 15, and 6. 1, 1, 15, 6. Two of those have to do with the idea that, that we are to live in the world. The second one is that we are to be someone to someone else. You know, we are to engage somebody else who needs Jesus, form a relationship with them, you know, not in a, a manipulative way, but in a concerned way, in a caring way, because apart from Christ, their world is somewhat lacking, and so we're going to show them the compassion that Jesus showed for the compassion of the people in the world all the time. He wasn't criticized uh, by the people of the world. He was criticized by the church for associating with the people of the world. In fact, the biggest criticism that the church had about Jesus should be the criticism that we proudly wear ourselves. Because he invited Matthew, a tax collector, to join with him in the work. Tax collectors were notorious for cheating people, and uh, the truly religious would have nothing to do with them. A Pharisee, by definition, is one who separates themselves. You know, Pharisees would have nothing to do with Gentiles, nothing to do with tax collectors, nothing to do uh, with any known sinner. Jesus invited a known sinner into his inner circle. And then he went and had dinner with him. And Matthew invited all of his friends, even greater sinners than himself. And Jesus was having dinner with them. And the the Pharisees stood on the outside. And as his disciples walked in or out of the room, he said, why is this that your teacher eats with tax collectors and associates with sinners? Jesus, on knowing what they said, came out and said to them, Is it not the healthy who need a doctor? No, it's the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not condemnation. For I have come to call the righteous. I have not come to call the righteous, but come to reach out to sinners. This is Jesus' idea of living in the world. Not excusing and not pretending that wrong is right, but showing by his own life and his own values a different attitude while accepting and engaging and loving those who are misguided. We are walking the line. Yes, yes, we recognize and avoid the enemy. But the enemy are not people under the influence of Satan. The enemy is Satan himself. You know, for this reason, uh, we live in the world. For this reason, you know, our pastors don't dress in 17th century garb. You know, our pastors dress in the garb of uh, of the culture. For this reason, we don't talk about preaching as much as we do about teaching you know don't preach to me is a negative term in our society you know it's talking down to somebody you know we do want teaching we do welcome instruction but not somebody who is pontificating and demeaning other people you know we use the technology we're online streaming we we have technology in this room uh we use instruments of the day kind of an interesting thought you know martin luther uh encouraged them to use the organ in his day. Uh, The organ, the pipe organ, was considered too rude of an instrument uh, for sacred music. It truly was, because it was used in the bar halls, you know, uh, for singing drinking songs. And and, uh, he wrote a a famous dedication of a Bible that he presented to the organist at Halle. And and he said in, in that dedication, continue to use this instrument to the glory of God 
and the blessing of his people. I'm sure if David had had such an instrument, he would have used it or anything else newly invented to make music to the glory of God. Now, I don't frequent a lot of bars. You may see me occasionally, you know, in a place that serves alcohol, but I don't frequent the bars, so I don't know typically what instruments they have there. But I, I guarantee you, it's probably not a pipe organ, you know. Uh, it's probably the, the instruments that you'll see on our stage because that's the culture of our day. What do you think he would have said about what would be fitting for the music of his day if he were speaking today? We walk the, long, but the line, but we don't cross the line. And while we live in the world, there's concern that you not cross the line. You know, you don't embrace the views and the values of the world, although you're a witness to it. You are in the world, but not of the world. They are not of the world, verse 16, even as an I, I am not of the world. Sanctify them or, or uh, keep them safe, keep them holy, keep them in the faith by your truth. How do you do that? Well, your word is the truth. When uh, law enforcement in our nation uh, wants to uncover crime or drug enforcement wants to uncover um, and, and intervene in that which is destroying people, they put somebody undercover. They call it deep cover, in fact, if they're there a long time. And that's what we are to be. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to be in deep cover. And, and yet there's always danger that when somebody is living around people who have different values, that you begin to identify with them and you begin to accept their values as your own. The Bible warns us about that. You know, be careful as you work in the world. In fact, as you think about our, our numeric code for living the Christian faith, 1, 1, 15, 6, the first one stands for be in worship one day a week, worship and rest, because that's what God wants for you. In fact, the Bible says, forsake not the assembling together is the habit of some. And do it even more as you see that day drawing near. Come together for encouragement and uplifting of one another uh, in the truth. And, and so we encourage people to, you know, if you're going to live in the world, you better be in worship. You better be sitting under some good teaching. And then the 15, spend 15 minutes, you know, every day in a spiritual discipline. You know, every day, get up and refocus. Okay, I'm in the world. It's dangerous out there. Uh, I know that uh, the Bible says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good intentions. And I know that James said, do you not know that friendship with the world means enmity towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. I don't want to be that. And yet I'm called to be out there. I'm called to live in that condition. But I have to protect myself. How do I do that? Protect yourself with the word. Stay in the word. It's just really important that you raise your family in the word and that you stay in the word. Ultimately, the Lord calls us to be salt and light. That's how we are to be in the world, to be salt and light. And I ask... Uh, one of our assistants to, to, to uh, render that, and I said, please don't put a salt shaker up there, because I, I think that's our common use of salt today, is to raise our blood pressure, and uh, that's not what Christians are to do, lay, raise blood pressure of other people, and, and it's not even to flavor the world. Uh, you know, the Bible says, Jesus himself, you are the salt of the earth, but a salt has lost its, its purpose. It has no purpose at all. It's not good for anything. It's as good as sand. It should just be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, we think of salt as adding flavor to food. But even a century ago in America, uh, I just finished the autobiography of Daniel Boone, or the biography of Daniel Boone, and, and they would camp at salt licks where the water was salty, and they would distill the water away from the salt 
they had to have salt in order to survive, in order to preserve their food, preserve their meat. And, and if you're to be the salt, you're to be the preservative of that which is true in the culture. That's what God wants you to be, salt. Not to just add flavor to the world, uh, but to preserve the truth of God in the world. And then he says, and you are the light. No one puts a light under a bowl, but they let their light shine. So you should let your light shine that others may see your good deeds and, and glorify your Father in heaven. I think a lot of Christians would say, yeah, show that light. Disclose all the evil in the world. That's what, Shine your light on that stuff. That's not what he says when he says we are to be salt and light. We are to be a preservative. We are to be a guide. We are to be a beacon you know, to others about a life that is better than the life that they're living. I guarantee you if they're living apart from God, their life is not all uh, roses. Their life is difficult. No matter how much they have, no matter how much they try to satisfy the flesh, it will not satisfy. Because only when they are united with Christ in the way that God would have them be united with him, will they have life that is truly life as God defines it. These are the means by which God wants us to be in the world and yet not of the world. To preach the gospel and to declare his love to a lost and dying people. May God enable you to be that kind of in the world and not of the world, Christian person. Let's rise for prayer. Lord, Lord, it's hard. It, 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 it's hard to live out my life and, and uh, to be judged and, and to be rejected and for living out my life and, and, and not give as good as I get, not, not demean, not demand, and not criticize, and, but to still love as you loved even those who despised you. As you continue to pray for your enemies, help me to be that kind of Christian in the world and, and help me to know that there's power in that. There's power in that kind of witness. Uh, help us to be that, Lord, and, and help me to realize the value uh, of Christian fellowship and, and the value of your word that it would daily be in my life and, and it would uh, keep me strong as I engage, as I go out into the dangerous place called the world and, and accomplish your purpose.